0: Father, we just come before you now with our Bibles open and our hearts open and our minds open to hear from you. We ask that you would show us great things now. Each one here, each one needs to hear something a little different. Each one of us is in a unique life position and yet we all have things in common. And God, you are the all-knowing wise God. You know how to meet each one, how to instruct each one. You know how to warn us. Lord, you are able by your spirit working through your word to fire some shots across our bow, some admonishments, to put up some signposts to direct us, to refuel us where we need to be refreshed and empowered, to give us unction where we need to press on. You can do all these things. And so now, God, we submit ourselves to you and ask that you would accomplish this work through your word, that you would have your perfect way, that every heart now would be attentive, that you would limit and even destroy distractions in this place. And God, I don't want to speak. I want you to. We want to hear from you. Your God, your wise, you alone are king and all knowing and sovereign so I submit my heart and my mind and my mouth to you now. Holy Spirit, come and instruct us for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's start reading through the parable of the sower of the seed. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, And Jesus began to teach again by the sea, or by the lake, namely the Sea of Galilee. And such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got in a boat, On the sea and he sat down and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land and Jesus was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, listen or give attention to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow and it came about that as he was sowing, some seed fell along the road and the birds came and they ate it up. And Another seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil, but after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Another seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it and yielded no crop. Another seed fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundred fold. And Jesus was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you, it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables in order that while seeing they may not see. And not while seeing, they may not see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may not hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? And how will you understand all the parables? And so we see at the outset here in verse one, a common scene. Jesus once again being overwhelmed by the multitudes, Mark is careful to point out throughout his Gospel how tremendous the, the multitudes were that were coming to Jesus. They wanted to hear from Him. They wanted to see Him. They wanted to watch Him perform miracles. They wanted to know what He had to say. He was very controversial at the time. You remember that last week His family came from Nazareth and they wanted to take Him custody having thought that He had gone loony. And then the scribes came from Jerusalem and they were giving accusations saying He cast out demons by Satan. And so there's all this controversy. And once again, all the people have gathered and the crowd is so great amongst the Sea of Galilee that Jesus steps back into a boat to give himself a little relief, you know, because they had him backed up to the water and he steps into the boat and there he sits down and he begins to teach. And that day, the Jewish rabbis would teach sitting down and everybody else would stand up. I think we should enact that here. I'd love to sit down for an hour and have you guys all stand but it's not the first century in Israel, so we won't. But Jesus sat down, as the rabbis commonly did, and as he taught from the boat there, we can imagine the Sea of Galilee possibly formed a little amphitheater-type setting. As we know, because we're very scientifically smart, that sound travels across water very well. And there a multitude could hear his every word. Those of us who are going to Israel this summer will see this very situation. And he begins to teach the multitude in parables. This is the first time that Mark uses the word parable. And this is the first parable he gives us. The word parable is a Greek word coming from two other Greek words. Balo meaning to throw. And para meaning alongside. And so it means to throw alongside. The idea here is to make a comparison. Jesus would throw alongside a spiritual truth some common points of reference. We'll see that in the parables and expressing in this parable, he uses things like soil, seed, birds, the road, thorns, rocks, and the sun. And so a parable is a discourse that uses common everyday points of reference to highlight or illustrate or explain or to make clear a spiritual truth. And this was Jesus' usual form of teaching, and that's what he's doing here. But something interesting in verse 12, it says that he spoke in parables so that those who were there, some of them, while seeing may not see and perceive, and while hearing may not hear and may not understand. What did that mean? Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter six, starting in verse nine. In Isaiah chapter six, God pronounced to the nation that he is bringing judgment upon the nation. The nation had ignored the word of the Lord, had been disobedient to the leading of the Lord, and now God said that he would cause a blindness to come upon them. He would also cause a judgment to come upon them. That judgment would come in the form of Nebuchadnezzar and the nation of Babylon coming and conquering Israel and taking them away captive. But it also came in the sense that he would cause them to be deaf, dumb and blind, so to speak, to the things of God. It's as if God would say, if you choose to continually ignore me, then I'll go ahead and give you the desires of your heart and I'll cause it so that you cannot hear me and you cannot comprehend and you cannot understand. This concept from Isaiah chapter six is repeated in Jeremiah chapter two, as well as in Ezekiel chapter twelve. And there, this hardening of hearing and seeing, this lack of understanding, the understanding and ability, therefore, being removed from the people is explained or attributed to in Ezekiel chapter 12, rebellion within their hearts. We see the parallel to this in the New Testament and in first century Israel as the religious leaders, or at least the bulk thereof, rejected Jesus Christ and his message. And this is to whom Jesus is referring and he says here, in effect, since you are seeing, I've done things out in the open, I've healed people, I've walked on water, I've raised people from the dead, I've taught very clearly. And since you see these things and refuse to believe, even as the scribes that we saw last week saw him cast out demons, but they refused to believe it to be the power of God, God... In his judgment says, then there comes a moment now where I will harden your heart, while I will, where I will blind you to the truth in judgment. We see it illustrated in Romans chapter 1. Turn there. Keep a finger here in Mark and go to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be back and forth between Mark and Romans all morning, so you might want to keep a marker in Romans. Romans chapter 1, we see another telling of this hardening that God will do to people in judgment. Starting verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Not that the truth can't be known. It's not to say now that God is going to forbid them from repentance, but these are men who suppress the truth like the scribes last week, seeing it, but choosing to attribute it to Satan. Because that, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident among them. For God made it clear to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Very important verse in the Bible there. God has revealed himself sufficiently to all of humanity so that the man who says there is no God has no excuse to say that. God declares that he has sufficiently revealed himself in creation. So look what happens now in verse 21. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, they rejected the Creator and began to worship the creation. We see that all the time in our society. Verse 24 now, here's the result. Therefore, God gave them over. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. It says it again in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. It says it again in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Humanity, having no reason... To reject God, God having clearly revealed Himself, and yet humanity saying, I don't want to deal with God. I don't want God. God says, "And I'll give you exactly what you want. I'll allow you to go in the way you want to go. I'll allow you to continue on in sin. I'll give you over to the lust of the flesh. I'll give you over to the perversion of mind. And that's the condition of so much humanity today. You see, God's not going to force us. The Bible declares, us that he de- declares to us that He draws us by His loving kindness. But when we reject Him, He removes that drawing, and He allows us to move on in our own rejection, and there happens now a hardening, and a blindness, and a deafness. This is what happened to Israel in the first century. The bulk of them having rejected the Messiah, we're told now in Romans chapter 11, that there came a partial, a partial, excuse me, hardening to Israel for a time. Turn to Romans chapter 11 as we see this played out. Romans 11. In Romans chapter 11, Paul is warning the Gentiles, that is anyone in the world who is not a Jew, and who is in the church, not to be arrogant against the Jews not to be anti-Jewish. God has made certain promises to them, certain covenants with them, and they are the root, the foundation of even our faith. And we, the church, has merely been grafted into that stem or that root or that foundation. And Paul says to us, the Holy Spirit, better put, in Romans chapter 11, don't be arrogant against the root. Don't be arrogant against the Jews and think somehow that the church has supplanted the Jews or removed the Jews or that God is done with them or that the promises for Israel have been transferred to the church. That's not a biblical doctrine. He explains it here in verse 25 of Romans chapter 11. For I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren or a more literal translation stupid i don't want you to be stupid brethren of the mystery lest ye be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening a partial a partial hardening has happened to israel until the fullness of the gentiles has come in and thus all israel will be saved just as it is written You see, because of their rejection, there came a moment where even as Jesus is speaking of in our text, he allowed them to go blind to the truth, to continue in their rebellion, even as he said in Isaiah and in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and in Mark and in Romans 1 and in Romans 12, he allowed them to be blinded until we, the Gentiles, were brought into the church and that partial hardening will end after the rapture of the church. When the bride of Christ, you and I, are taken up to meet the Lord in the sky, and there we shall ever be with the Lord. And then begins the seven-year tribulation period, as spoken of in the book of Revelation. And that seven-year period has primarily, paramountly, has to do with the nation of Israel. It's called in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trial, or the time of Jacob's or Israel's refining. At the end of that time, Jesus the Messiah will have a physical return to earth, the Bible declares. Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21, Zechariah chapter 12, and numerous other places. And at that time, we're told in the book of Zechariah that the nation of Israel will see with their own eyes Him whom they have pierced and will then recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And there will be a great returning, a restoration of the nation of Israel unto God through the Messiah. But for a period of time, there's been a hardening, a blinding, just so you and I could come into the church and be saved. But that time, thank you, amen, hooray, Lord, is coming to an end. For the Lord and the rapture of the church is coming soon. And then Israel will be restored, just as it says in verse 26. And thus, all Israel will be saved. All Israel be, will be saved does not mean every individual Jew, but it means national Israel. It's qualified by verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. Nobody can come to God except through the Messiah. But there will be a national restoration after the tribulation period where the bulk of the nation of Israel recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Not every individual Jew, but those who recognize. But at that time, He's coming physically. We'll be able to see His wounds. He'll set His feet down on the Mount of Olives, and He'll ascend into the Temple Mount, and He'll establish the throne of David and rule and reign. You've got to be dumb to reject Him at that time. Amen? Amen? So that's the basis of what Jesus is talking about there in Mark chapter 4, verse 12, when he says they will see but not understand, hear but not perceive. Turn now back to the book of Mark. Returning to the parable in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says that there's a sower. The sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, as he was throwing out the seed, some of the seed fell along the road. That would be the hard ground. And it didn't sprout up because the ground was hard there. And the birds, they came along and they ate it. It says also that some of the seed found, uh, uh, fell on the rocky ground in the shallow soil. When we go to Israel, we will see that a lot of the topsoil is shallow and underneath there's a layer of limestone is very common in Israel. And so it sprouted up very quickly being in shallow soil, but it could not take root because of the rock underneath. He says that the, that the seeds also fell among the thorns, but the thorns grew up and they choked out the seeds. But some of the seeds that the sower threw, fell on good soil. And the seed that fell on good soil produced a harvest 30, 60, even 100-fold. In the first century in Israel, if you were to plant a crop, if you had a 10-fold harvest, you were doing very well. But Jesus says here that because of the good soil, which we'll define in just a minute, there was a 30 or 60 or even 100-fold increase when the seed was sown. And so now the disciples come and they ask for an explanation. And Jesus gives them the explanation starting in verse 14. Let's read it. Jesus says, the sower sows the word. There's the identification of the seed. And these are the ones who are along the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. And in a similar way, these are the ones whom the seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, they immediately fall away. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, and the worries of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in, and choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word, and they accept it, and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Now concerning the explanation of this parable, there's four important things I want us to know this morning. Four important points. Number one, the fact that the sower goes out to sow. It says there in verse three that the sower went out and he sowed. And by the very nature, the description of all the different places where the seed fell, he was broadcasting. You know what I mean? He wasn't just sticking his finger and making a little hole and dropping in one little seed and then sticking his finger. No, he was going around and he was just chucking out the seed. You know what I mean? Sort of hoping for the best. The sower went out to sow and he was broadcasting. We'll discuss that in a minute. Second important point. The seed is the Word of God. It says there in verse 14, the Word, Luke chapter 8, verse 11, clarifies for us which Word, the Word of God, it says in Luke's parallel account. So what does the sower sow? He sows the word of God. We'll discuss that. The third thing, very important to know and to identify, are the hindrances to the harvest. Jesus gives us tremendous insight to spiritual warfare here. Amazing insight into evangelism. He gives us here fertile ground and fodder for prayer as he exposes the hindrances to the harvest. Last thing we need to know is the preparation of the soil. How do we prepare the soil so that the bulk of the soil would be good soil? Not the hard soil, not the rocky soil, and not among the thorns. Firstly, the sower goes out to sow. When Jesus said the sower went out to sow, he was no doubt referring to himself because he was there and he was sowing. He was teaching the multitudes repeatedly over and over again, day in and day out. But he's also referring to you and I, the Christian. We are to be referred to or known as or recognize ourselves as sowers. And the sower has got one job. To go out and sow. We got to go out and sow. If the sower don't sow, he ain't a sower. so, So what are you doing? The sower is called to go out and sow. Let me show you why this is very important as we go back now to Romans in chapter 10. I told you we'd be back and forth between Mark and Romans. We'll continue to do so, so have quick access. Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 13. This is why it is critically important that you and I, Christians, recognize our role as sowers. It says in Romans ten thirteen, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Amen. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. However, they did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on him whom they have not heard? And how are they going to hear unless, let me make it very personal now, how are they going to hear unless you tell them? How are they going to hear unless you tell them? It's my job to tell you. All right. I'm cool with that. But it's your job to tell the world. It's your job to tell the world. If you leave it up to me or the preachers, we're going to be very limited. But if each one were to reach one, the world is going to be very evangelized. And there's going to be a whole lot of people calling upon the name of the Lord. The sad statistic is that less than 10% of Christians ever share their faith with somebody else. Now, I'm asking that God would reverse that statistic in our church. Amen? Amen. Then 90% of everyone here would be active in sharing their faith. We're called to be salt and we're called to be light. We're called to be sowers. And we are called to broadcast that seed. Don't be so picky. We're always so picky. You know what I mean? And oh, I'm just really praying about sharing with this person and that and the other. And that's cool. Before you talk to a man about God, talk to God about the man. But don't pray all day. There comes a time where you've got to step out in action. You know what I mean? Gosh, Lord, do you want me to tell him about you? Oh, I wonder broadcast, man, throw it out there. The sower went out to sow. now we uniquely have been entrusted with the word of God. We are called in Second Corinthians, chapter five, the ambassadors of Christ and the ministers of reconciliation. We are called to be in First Peter, chapter four, verse 10 stewards of God's grace. A steward is one who distributes goods. We are entrusted with God's grace and we are called to see His people to distribute it, to see that it gets out amongst our community. Amen? Amen? And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, that we are God's fellow workers. If we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. Don't trust the government to get the word out. Don't trust one preacher to get the word out. He can't do it. You can reach far more people than Billy Graham ever has in a one-on-one context. You can figure that out statistically, actually, and people have, but I can't remember because I'm not smart. But we have been entrusted with that privilege. Nobody else. In the tribulation period, after the rapture of the church, the rapture of the church being when Jesus comes and calls us home unto himself, and there we are caught up in the sky, we disappear, hooray, amen. In the tribulation period, after the rapture of the church, it says that there will be other ones who are entrusted with that. There's two witnesses. They breathe fire. They're gnarly dudes. The whole world sees them. Read the book of Revelation. There's 144,000 witnesses taken out of the 12 tribes of Jerusalem. And there's an angel who flies to and fro throughout the earth preaching the gospel. But as of right now, there ain't no two witnesses. Ain't no angel flying around preaching the gospel. And there's not the 144,000. It's you, Reality Carpenteria. Yeah? It's you. You're entrusted. You are called to be the sower. And the sower went out and seed. That means uh, sow. That means he deliberately, purposefully left his dwelling place to go out and tell people about Jesus. Amen? Now, every weapon that is powerful in this world is powerful because it has an effective delivery system. You know what I'm saying? The United States could make some great weapon, and if it just sits in a warehouse somewhere in the United States and blows up, that was not effective for our warfare, was it? <laughs> no, it needs a delivery system. It needs to get from here to there to be effective. It could be powerful, but until the delivery system is put in place, it's not effective. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Don't say power like that. Power. It's the power. Let's try it again, people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power. Amen. The power of God unto salvation. The gospel message in and of itself, that simple message that we've got to realize that we're sinners, recognize that Jesus died upon the cross, repent of our sins, and receive Him as Lord and Savior. That simple message that I just gave you in 12 seconds is in doom of power from on high. God has invested spiritual and real power in it. But it ain't powerful till it gets out. It ain't a weapon until it's been delivered. And we are the delivery system. And obviously that powerful weapon is the word of God, which leads us to our second point. That the seed is the word of God. What do we sow? We sow the word of God. Because as verse 17 says here in Romans 10, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Salvation is by grace through... Salvation is by grace through faith. faith. But how are the people going to have faith? Unless they've heard the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the Word of Christ. So we sow the Word of God. We don't sow a church. We don't preach reality carpenteria. We preach Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. We sow the Word of God. We don't sow a personality or a person. We don't sow philosophies or ideologies or neat little programs. We sow the Word of God because it alone is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, Amen. Beyond that, the Word of God, it is said about it in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 10 and 11. If you can pop it up there. Do you have the whole verse? Oh. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnish seed to the sower and bread to the eaters, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So you want your evangelism? You want your ministry in the lives of others to be powerful? Give them the word of God. But to give the word of God out, the word of God's got to come in. Amen? That's why we've got to read our Bibles, people. That's why we've got to read our Bibles, because we're sowers. What are you going to sow if you don't know the Word? What are you going to sow if you don't know the Word? So you put the Word in, and the Word comes out, and God says, it's not going to return void. We think it does. We often throw some Bible out there, some biblical concepts or things about Jesus, and the people just, ah! But the Holy Spirit was sent that He might convict the world of sin. So that person goes home, and they put their little head on the pillow, and the Holy Spirit goes, Z-Z-Z. Sinner. God loves you. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. What He said is true. What is this voice? It's the Holy Spirit, man. God's word will not return void, it will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent forth when you sow it. When we deliver the Word, we deliver Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that is Jesus Christ. And so when we sow the Word of God, we sow Jesus Himself. The Word being the very expression of Him. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, which I believe we have. If you could put it up. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. You see that? God's word performs a work. Your job isn't to do the work. It's the Holy Spirit that ministers to the inside. Only the Holy Spirit can cause salvation to take place. We just put it out there. We've seen a lot of people get saved here at this church. On Easter, a whole truckload of people got saved. That wasn't your work. That wasn't my work. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. But we were faithful, weren't we? To give the word. To set the stage. To love people in the name of Jesus. That's our job. It's very simple. It's not complicated. We complicate it. Often. It's very simple. And we're told that when we sow, we're sowing to a particular location in the human. That is to their heart. The seat of the emotions. We sow to the heart, to the core of somebody's being. It says in Matthew chapter 13, in his parallel account about this parable, that when the word is sown, it goes to the heart. This is very important that we realize that the word is going to the heart because of what it says in Romans 10, a few verses back, verse 8. Romans ten eight. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is a word of faith, which we were preaching. Verse nine, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart, man believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth, he confesses resulting in salvation. For scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. So you realize, amen, that when we're sharing the word, we're going after the heart. We're going after the heart. What relates to the heart of human beings? What relates to the heart of human beings like nothing else? Love. Love. Dave Granada. Love. Love relates to the heart of human beings. So we are to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. First Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. You've all heard it at every wedding you've ever been to. So that could have everything going on. We could have rad gifts, rad ministries. We could be given to the poor, all these things. But without love, we're just noisy noisy gongs? gongs and banging cymbals. We're just making a bunch of noise. And it would be easy for us as a community of believers to just make a bunch of noise by just kind of throwing it out there. We throw it out, but in love. Speak the truth in love, otherwise it's meaningless. Love communicates to the heart of humanity. And how do we love? The Bible tells us to love in deed, not just in word. We love through actions, right? I could say to my beautiful wife all day long, I love you, I love you, I love you, but if I never back that up with action, it's vain, it's empty. Love is an action. So there's a certain amount of people that God has entrusted to your sphere of influence at work in your family, school, your friends, God has entrusted them to your sphere of influence because you're the minister of reconciliation. You're the ambassador of Christ. You're the steward of the grace. And so you are to be loving those people in the name of Jesus. You will communicate more with love than you ever will with your words. The word has got to come because faith comes by hearing. But if you love somebody first and then you put the word out, man, it's sweet the way it's received, isn't it? Not Bible thumping, but love thumping. And after you thump them with the love, then you can thump them with the Bible a little bit. So we're to sow the Word of God. We're to sow the Word of God in love. I love apologetics. That is a defense of the faith. Every Christian is called to be able to make a reasoned defense of the faith. But in my short life, I have never argued anybody into the kingdom of God. But I have loved people into the kingdom of God. Have carried them into the kingdom of God. Apologetics are important because through apologetics, that is a defense of the faith, a reasoned defense of the faith, you can remove some big question marks that now open them up to the truth of the gospel. You can remove some stumbling blocks. You know what I mean? Some big voids hanging out there. You can remove them through apologetics, but you're not going to argue them into the kingdom. It's been said if they got argued into the kingdom, they could be argued out. And so, no apologetics, know how to defend the faith. Just to remove a stumbling block, and then comes the love. Amen? Charles Spurgeon put it this way to his congregation. He told them at one time, be walking Bibles. Be walking Bibles. And one of the scariest realizations in my life is that I may be the only Bible that some people ever read. Think about that. In your workplace, in your family, at school, your friends, whatever it may be, you may be the only Bible they ever read. All that they ever know about Jesus Christ is going to be what they see and experience and hear from you. Now, on one hand, that is frightening because we're jacked up. But on the other hand, thank God, it doesn't all depend upon us. It depends upon God and his desire to save and the working of his gospel and his Holy Spirit. But we are to be walking Bibles. Truth on display in the way that we love people. But for us to be walking Bibles, we've got to know the Bible, right? How are you going to live it if you don't know it? Hamilton once said concerning the Bible, Know it, learn it, live it. Learn it, know it, live it, in some order like that. But to live it, you've got to learn it, you've got to know it. One more thing that we've got to know, and this takes us to point three, With regards to our evangelism, we must know our enemy. It's imperative that we know the enemy and his schemes. We've turned this, the hindrances, to the harvest. Uh, J. Oswald Sanders has a great book called Satan is No Myth. And it's just a very biblical uh, look at who Satan is. And he writes this in one of the chapters. Oh, that's long. Victor Hugo said, a good general must penetrate the brain of his enemy." In more recent times, Field Marshal Lord Montgomery told in his memoirs that when he was assigned to lead the North African campaign of the allies against the Germans in World War II, his main subject of study was not the terrain on which they would fight, but the character, background and outlook of his opposite, General Rommel. If he could foresee what strategy Rommel was likely to adopt, then he could take steps to forestall and eventually conquer him. Should we, the Christian, be less prudent in the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged? Obviously, the answer is no. We've got to be enlightened to, educated, concerning, and smart about the schemes and the tactics of the enemy. We've got to identify him and what he is doing. There's a Chinese proverb that reads like this. If you know yourself and your adversary clearly, then in a hundred battles, you will win a hundred times. If you know yourself, whatever, this part more importantly, and your adversary clearly, then in a hundred battles, you will win a hundred times. And in Mark chapter four, Jesus wonderfully for us exposes the enemy and the tactics. Go back to Mark four now. Mark chapter four. As we look at the hindrances to the harvest, we'll see the first one in verse 15. And these are the ones who are along the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So enemy number one, public enemy number one is Satan. Declares that right here. He's always called the enemy in the Bible. His tactic here is to steal. To take away the word which we seek to sow into the hearts of men and women. He wants to come after us and take it away. He's the thief. The Bible says he was a liar and a thief from the beginning. His target is the hard soil or the hard heart. Each one of these soil conditions in this parable represents a condition of the heart within humanity. And there's a lot of people that have a hard heart. And it's these people who are callous to the things of God, not wanting to hear the things of God, quick to reject them, having that hard, impenetrable heart whom Satan targets. He knows then that it's easy for him to come, even after sitting under a sermon for an hour, that he can come in and snatch it away. And we'll talk about in just a minute how to soften that soil and how to foil the plan of the enemy. But I'll educate you as to this. You know that here at Reality... We do the bulk of the worship after the message. Uh, A lot of other churches do the worship prior to the message. And Calvary Chapel, whom reality is an extension of, has historically said this, that the worship of God prepares your heart for the word of God. And so they would generally put all the worship before the message because the worship prepares your heart. That is good and that is true and that is right. I believe that the worship of God prepares you for the word of God. But here's what I was tired of seeing as a preacher, as a pastor. I was tired of preaching my little heart out. I've been studying all week long. And I come up and I give the message. And it's the Word of God. And immediately after it's said, Amen. Bam! The people disappear and they're talking about the food. What they're going to get for breakfast. Where their car is. Where they're going to go surfing later. How hot it is inside the building. All these different things. And what it does is it gives the enemy opportunity to do what Jesus says he does. It gives the enemy opportunity to come and snatch that word away. So what we've done in reality, not claiming it to be any better, but just good for us, is we've moved the bulk of the worship to the end of the message. So that now we hinder the opportunity of Satan and we maximize opportunity for the Holy Spirit. Because now we don't just hear the word and walk out and start eating bagels. Now we hear the word and we marinate in the presence of God. We're stuck here for another 40 minutes, man. As the worship goes on, and as we begin to worship and reflect upon the Word and just praise God for who He is, the Holy Spirit begins to minister that message to our hearts. And I've seen people get saved in the middle of worship. They didn't get it during the message, but in the middle of worship they go, I get it! And they repent and they're born again. We see people halfway through the worship come up and begin to pray with the prayer team. We see work accomplished. We see people just begin to express a greater depth of love to the Lord. And so that's why we do a lot of worship after the message. Is to limit the opportunity for Satan. And to maximize the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to minister the word to the hearts of men and women. You got that? Just wanted to share why we do that. The second enemy is shown to us in verse 16. And in a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they heard the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, they immediately fall away. Enemy number one was Satan. Enemy number two is the flesh. The tactic of the flesh is a shallow or emotional response to the word of God. Yeah, that sounds good. Hooray, hurrah. All right. But then, when persecution arises, or the rubber meets the road, or we've got to begin to live that word out, or the Lord wants to go deeper with it, we fall away because it was just shallow. It was rocky soil. It never really took root. There is a brief springing up, and then there is a withering away because they couldn't handle the reality of it. Jesus saw that happen as he had a whole bunch of multitudes begin to follow him. And then as he taught deeper through John chapter six, it says that the multitudes begin to leave him saying these things are too hard for us. We've seen that in our church experience. We've seen people come and seemingly make a profession of faith. And for a couple of weeks, we're all excited and happy, clappy. And then they're gone and we never see him again. It was rocky soil. It was a shallow emotional response. It didn't take root in them. They weren't willing to face the reality of discipleship to Jesus Christ. The target for enemy number two, the flesh, is the shallow or the religious heart. The heart that wants to satisfy some religious longing. The heart that wants to be able to say, I came to church. I did my time. I raised my hands. I wiggled around. I talked to some people. I'm out of here. They want religion to replace the relationship. God's not going to have it. Would your wife, men, allow you to replace your love relationship with religion? Hey, sweetheart, I'm going to buy you a dozen roses a week. I'm going to wash your car, and let's call it good, okay? It doesn't work like that. There needs to be the real relationship. In the same way, the shallow heart and the one who is targeted by the flesh is the one that says, I just want a little bit of religion. I just want to feel good about it. I want to come and do my time and not have to engage. That's the rocky soil. Enemy number three, the last enemy. It's given to us in verse 18. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Enemy number three is the world. The world. And as it's described there in verse 19, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things. The world not meaning God's beautiful creation. The world meaning this world system, which is contrary to God, which is antichrist in nature, of which First John says lies in the power of the evil one. This world system, which has set itself up contrary to God. This is the third enemy. Here's the three enemies to the word of God going forth and our being ambassadors. Satan, the flesh, and the world. And the world goes after people who hear the word with worries, deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things. And its tactic is to choke out the word. It's to get the person distracted. It's to get them thinking about the things here on earth and not the things that are above. That's why Colossians chapter 3 says, if you've been risen with Christ, set your mind on things above, not on the things of the world. Because when we think about the things of the world, don't we get so distracted? When I think about the things of the world, I want more. I want bigger tires on my truck. I want a better lift on it. I want a new dirt bike. I want the latest board that my dad is making. There's always more. We always want more. It's the concern for other things, the desire for other things. It chokes out the word. It doesn't choke the person, interesting it says. It chokes the word so that it becomes unfruitful because our heart is now crowded. This is the crowded heart or the divided heart. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That word pure has nothing to do with sexual purity. It means undivided or singular. Blessed is the person who has an undivided heart with regards to God, for he is the one who shall see God. But the divided heart, overly concerned with the worries of the world, with riches and with other things, the word is choked out and there it can't take root. It can't have its effect. Later on as homework. Well, maybe we have time. Sure we do. Are you guys okay? Give me a little more. you all right? Then concerning the worries of the world, let's look at Matthew chapter 6 very quickly. If you're not all right, just go to sleep. You can get the CD later. But if you're all right, be with me. Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus addresses the worries of the world. In the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, Don't be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on it. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the air that they do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than they to the father? Rhetorical question, the answer being yes. Yes. Verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. Verse 30, but if God so raise the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, what are we going to eat or what will we drink or what shall we clothe ourselves with? Listen, for all these things the Gentiles or heathens eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek first his kingdom... And his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Therefore, don't be anxious for tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says, forget about the worries of the world. It's going to choke out the, the, the word. It's going to consume you. Instead, set your mind on things above. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. And all the other stuff falls in line. Now, not many people believe this, but David said, I've never seen the righteous of God go hungry. You put God first, you seek God first, and he's going to take care of all the little details of your life. That's his desire as your father. This is what Jesus had to say about the worries of the world. Now go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. If you never notice in the New Testament, all the T's are together. It starts with Thessalonians and then the Timothys and then Titus. So it's easy to just find a T and start looking around. Now we're talking about that second tactic or part of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. The word of God has a lot to say about money. There's about 500 verses in the Bible concerning prayer. There's about 500 verses in the Bible concerning faith. But there are over 2000 verses in the Bible concerning money. Why is that? Well, because God wants all your money. No, that's not why. Don't be dumb. God doesn't want your money. He can make money if you need to make money. God doesn't need your money. It's a matter of the heart. God addresses it so much because we're so concerned with it. Because we're so wrapped up in it. We just are as people. It's part of our sinful nature. I mean, we just, ah, money. <laughs> if that's not you, praise God for you. But for the rest of us, the Bible has over 2,000 things to say. And here's a little bit of it. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Timothy 6 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation, and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. That's the most misquoted verse in the whole Bible. It says, or people say, and Pink Floyd said in the song, that the love of money, or no, I'm sorry, that money is the root of all evil. The Bible doesn't say that. Money in and of itself is morally neutral. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You see what it says? There are some who are walking with the Lord, but because they could not get over this money thing, they went after it and away from the Lord. Verse 11, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And then it says concerning money again in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world that they're evil. That's not what the Bible says. Are you with me? The Bible doesn't say that. It's not evil to be rich. Solomon asked for wisdom and God made him filthy rich. It's not evil to be rich. Some people God entrust with the dough. Others, they don't get none. But for the one who is rich, it says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready for sharing. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The Bible says just be careful when it comes to money, because it's going to want to come in and consume your passion Consume your will, consume your thoughts and choke out the word of God. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that we Christians ought to let the Word of God dwell richly in us. You want to be rich? Let the Word of God dwell richly in you. Concerning the last thing, the desire for other things, go to First John now. First John is a little bit before the book of Revelation and after the book of Hebrews. Hebrews, James, first and second Peter and first John. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 The word of God says in 1 John 2:15 Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that word in the Greek is agape. It means don't find your joy in the world. Not that you can't enjoy surfing. Not that you can't enjoy God's creation. That's not what it's saying. But don't find your identity and your joy and your treasure and your security in the things of the world. Don't agape. Don't place as first the things of the world. If anyone loves the world in that way, the love of God is not in him. For all that is of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, oh, I've got to have it. Oh, I need more of it. The boastful pride of life, oh, I'm the bomb, is not from the Father. But it's from the world and the world is passing away and also it's lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Those things are passing away. It says elsewhere in the New Testament that there will come a moment in history where all those things will be consumed with heat. They'll burn with fire. It's all going to burn. Don't put your hope in it. Don't put your trust in it. Put your hope and your trust and your confidence in God alone. Otherwise, these things begin to come and choke out the Word. Now, here's where we finish. Very briefly, fourth point, the preparation of the soil. I know I taught you that when a preacher says very briefly he's lying, but I mean it. The preparation of the soil. Three quick things. Number one, identify stumbling blocks and strongholds, both in yourself and in others. In yourself to deal with it, and others to pray concerning it. Identify them. They were just listed for us here. Search your heart today as we begin to worship in just three minutes. Search your heart. Lord, where am I with the deceitfulness of riches? Maybe the boastful pride of life, the things of the world, desire for other things. Where am I with this? Lord, search my heart. The psalmist said, Lord, search my heart. See if there be any wicked thing in me. Identify those things in yourself and deal with them. And then when you see them in others, you know how to pray. You see, here's a hint for warfare. You could see someone's just caught up in materialism. Now you know how to pray. You could see that they're just caught up in some religious ideology. Now you know how to pray. You can see that Satan is just coming and snatching away the good word. Now you know how to pray against the enemy. You see, there's insight when you identify. Identify and deal with it. Secondly, apply the word. For example, if somebody's concerned with the worries of the world, speak to them about Jesus Christ being enthroned. Speak to them about his fatherhood and his sovereignty and his care. Somebody's all caught up in riches. Ask them, what kind of riches are you laying up in heaven? Because all that stuff's going to burn, but you're going to stand before God one day and he's going to say, what did you do with the talents I gave you? Someone's caught up in other desires. Take them to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Turn on TV for them. Let them watch Rock Lives or um, VH1's Behind the Music. And they will see that these people got all the things that they desired and there was zero satisfaction. Give them a little popular culture history and they will see that those things don't satisfy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. So once you've identified the strongholds and the stumbling blocks in your lives or in others, apply the word of God to them. If you're struggling with these things today, begin to search the word of God and see its remedy in there and apply it to your life. Lastly, prayer. How do we prepare the soil? Primarily through prayer. Leonard Ravenhill in his frightening book called Revival Prayer says this. Good seed sown on bad ground, good seed sown on bad ground will produce an indifferent harvest. Good preaching on ground ill prepared by prayer is an abortive thing. We prepare the hearts of men and women through prayer. So let me ask you. Who do you care about in this world right now? Who do you want to know the love of Jesus Christ? You've got to pray. You've got to pray that God would begin to prepare the heart. That he begin to remove the stumbling blocks. Break up the fallow ground. That God with his Holy Spirit would just come and soften that heart. That it might be the good soil that would receive the word and it would yield 30, 60, or 100 fold. So now you have an assignment for the rest of the week. Ready? Write it down. Everybody pick one person. One person that you know needs to experience the love of Jesus Christ. And you spend the next week praying for them. God knows what you have need of before you ask. He understands what you're saying. When you don't have the words, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't have the words. So if you don't know what to pray, just pray this. God, soften their heart to the gospel. Let their heart be good soil. Make their heart fertile ground to receive your love. Take the next week and pray. Pray for that person. Okay? Everybody, one person. Just pray every day. It doesn't have to be long. There's no long prayers in the Bible. I don't know if you ever noticed that. No long prayers in the Bible. Just pray, God, soften their heart. Pray it every day, and then let's talk about it again next Sunday. Amen? God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the truth of it, the power of it, the way that it warns us and equips us. And Lord, as we move into worship now, we ask that by Your Holy Spirit You would minister these things to our hearts. If in any way we need to search ourselves concerning any of these enemies, Satan and any ground we've given him, the flesh in any way it's dominating us, the world in any way it's seduced us, I pray for the Christians in this room that we would contemplate those things and allow You to deal with them in our hearts, Lord. As we come and bless you and seek you and wait upon you, just have your way now, Lord. Lord, it's warm in here and it's probably cool outside. But we just want to take a few minutes to marinate, to let your words sink deeply, to commune with you and to bless you. Amen.